This is part two of a three-part series on India's independence movement. In part one, we looked at the independence movement from 1857 to 1945, covering everything from the Quit India movement to Bharat Singh. In this episode, episode 12, and part two, we look at the two-nation theory, independence, and the partition of India. But first, I want to highlight some of the key players in the 1940s independence movement. Some names you'll know, others less so. Let's start with the most well-known. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, or Gandhiji, or Bapu, or just Mahatma Gandhi. Born and raised in a Hindu family in coastal Gujarat in western India, Gandhi trained in law at the Inner Temple in London, and was called to the bar at the age of 22 in 1891. After two uncertain years in India, during which he was unable to start a successful law practice, he moved to South Africa in 1893 to actually represent an Indian merchant in a lawsuit. He ended up staying in South Africa for a full 21 years. It was in South Africa that Gandhi raised a family and first employed non-violent resistance in a campaign for civil rights. In 1915, at the age of 45, he returned to India. He set about organizing peasants, farmers and urban laborers to protect against excessive land tax and discrimination. Assuming leadership of the Indian National Congress in 1921, Gandhi led nationwide campaigns for easing poverty, expanding women's rights, building religious and ethnic amenity, ending untouchability and above all for achieving Swaraj or self-rule. Gandhi was assassinated in January 1948, just a few months after independence. The second most widely recognized figure in Indian independence is Jawaharlal Nehru. He was ultimately destined to be the first Prime Minister of independent India. Nehru and the Congress dominated Indian politics during the 1930s as the country moved towards independence. His idea of a secular, Nation-state was seemingly validated when Congress swept the 1937 provincial elections and formed the government in several provinces. On the other hand, the separatist group, the Muslim League, feared much poorer. However, these achievements were severely compromised in the aftermath of the Quit India movement in 1942 that saw the British effectively crush the Congress as a political organization. Nehru's ultimate influence on Indian politics remains to this day. Next, we have B.R. Ambedkar, or Pimrao Ramji Ambedkar, who wrote the Constitution of India, and to me is probably one of the most important figures in the Indian independence movement. Also known as Baba Sahib Ambedkar, he was a jurist, economist, politician, and social reformer who inspired the Dalit Buddhist movement and campaigned against social discrimination towards the untouchables known as the Dalits today. He was a member of the Constituent Drafting Committee. He was Independent India's First Minister of Law and Justice and considered the Chief Architect of the Constitution of India. Ambedkar was a prolific student, earning doctorates in economics from both Columbia University in the US and the University of London in the UK, and gained reputation as a scholar for his research in law, economics and political science. In his early career, career, he was an economist, professor and lawyer, His later life was marked by his political activities. He became involved in campaigning and negotiations for India's independence, publishing journals, advocating political rights and social freedoms for Dalits, and contributing significantly to the establishment of the Indian state. 
1956, he converted to Buddhism, initiating a mass conversion of Dalits to the Buddhist faith. Next, we move on to Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was the founder of Pakistan. He was a barrister, a politician, and the founder. Jinnah served as the leader of the All India Muslim League from 1913 until Pakistan's independence on the 14th of August, 1947, and then as Pakistan's first governor-general until his death. He is revered in Pakistan as Qued-e-Azam, or the Great Leader, and baba e Father of the Nation. His birthday is considered a national holiday in Pakistan. Like Gandhi, he died soon after independence. But unlike Nehru, he could not cement his legacy for future generations. Next is Vinayak Damodar Savakar. Savakar, commonly known as Veer Savakar in the Marathi language, was an Indian independence activist and politician who formulated the Hindu nationalist philosophy of Hindutva. He was a leading figure of the Hindu Mahabhasha. As a response to the Muslim League, Savika joined the Hindu Mahabhasha and popularized the term Hindutva or Hinduness, previously coined by Chandranath Basu to create a collective Hindu identity as an essence of India. In 1948, Savika was charged as a co-conspirator in the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi. However, he was acquitted by the court for lack of evidence. Prabhatvi Devi was an Indian freedom fighter from the present-day state of Bihar and wife of celebrated freedom fighter and social activist Jay Prakash Narayan. She was born to a prominent lawyer, Ritkishore Prashad and Pool Devi, in the present-day district of Sivan in Bihar. She was married to Jay Prakash. Jay Prakash himself was an Indian independence activist, theorist, social and political leader. He's also known as the hero of the Quit India movement and is remembered for leading the mid-1970s opposition against Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, for whose overthrow he had called for total revolution. Then there was Sebastian Bos, who we also discussed in the previous episode. He was an Indian nationalist, whose defiant patriotism made him a hero in India, but whose attempts during World War II to rid India of British rule with the help of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan left a somewhat troubled legacy. Vallabhai Patel, also popularly known as Sardar Patel, was an Indian politician. He served as the first Deputy Prime Minister of India. He was an Indian barrister and a senior leader of the Indian National Congress who played a leading role in the country's struggle for independence and guided its integration into a united independent nation. In India and elsewhere, he was often called Sardar, meaning chief in Hindi, Urdu and Persian. He acted as Home Minister during the political integration of India and the Indo-Pakistan War of 1947. Abdul Kalam Azad was an Indian scholar, an Islamic theologian, independence activist and a senior leader of the Indian National Congress during the Indian independence movement. Following India's independence, he became the first Minister of Education in the Indian government. He is commonly remembered as Mulana Azad, the word Mulana is honorific, meaning our master, and he has adopted Azad as free as his pen name. His contribution to establishing the Education Foundation in India is recognized by celebrating his birthday as National Education Day across the country. Master Tara Singh was a Sikh political and religious leader in the first half of the 20th century. He was instrumental in organizing the Sharomani Gurdwara Prabhakan Committee and guiding the Sikhs during the partition of India, which he strongly opposed. He later led the demand for a Sikh-majority state in Punjab in India. Louis Mountbatten 
In March 1947, Mountbatten was appointed Viceroy of India and oversaw the partition of British India into India and Pakistan. He then served as the first Governor-General of India until June 1948. In 1952, Mountbatten was appointed Commander-in-Chief of the British Mediterranean Fleet and NATO Commander of Allied Forces. Thereafter, he served as Chief of the Defence Staff until 1965, making him one of the longest-serving professional heads of the British Armed Forces. In 1979, Mountbatten was assassinated by a bomb planted aboard his fishing boat in Ireland by members of the Provisional IRA. Clement Attlee was a British politician who served as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1945 to 1951. And finally, there's Cyril Radcliffe. He was a British lawyer and law lord best known for his role in the partition of British India. This was a fellow who had never been east of Paris, was brought out of complete obscurity to demark the most consequential boundary in history. Let me repeat, Radcliffe was a lawyer and a law lord best known for his role in the partition of British India. A fellow who had never been east of Paris was brought out of complete obscurity to demark the most consequential boundary in history. So what is the two-nation theory? It is an ideology of religious nationalism which significantly influenced the Indian subcontinent before, during and after independence. This ideology is the crux of the invention of Pakistan and is at the cornerstone of just about everything India and Pakistan stand for. In essence, according to this theory, Muslims and Hindus are two separate nations with their own customs, religion and traditions. Therefore, from a social and moral point of view, Muslims should be able to have their own separate homeland outside of Hindu-majority India, in which Islam is the dominant religion, and be segregated from Hindus and other non-Muslims. The two-nation theory advocated by the All India Muslim League is the founding principle of the Pakistan movement. In 1925, during the Aligarh session of the All India Muslim League, which he chaired, Justice Rahim was one of the first to openly articulate on how Muslims and Hindus constitute two nations. And while it would become a common rhetoric later on, historian Ikram says that it created quite a sensation in the 20s. The Congress movement advocated for a secular state where religion was secondary or irrelevant to the governance of the country. It was this two-nation concept that ultimately led to what we now call the partition of India. British Prime Minister Clement Attlee appointed Lord Louis Mountbatten as India's last Viceroy, giving him the task to oversee British India's independence by June 1948, with the instruction to avoid a partition and preserve a united India but with adoptable authority to ensure a British withdrawal with minimal setbacks. Mountbatten hoped to revive the cabinet mission scheme for a federal arrangement for India, but despite his initial keenness for preserving the centre, the tense communal situation caused him to conclude that partition had become a necessary for a quick transfer of power. Vallabhai Patel was one of the first Congress leaders to accept the partition of India as a solution to the rising Muslim separatist movements led by Muhammad Ali Jinnah. 
he had been outraged by Jinnah's direct action campaign, which had provoked communal violence across India, and by the Viceroy's vetoes of his Home Department's plan to stop the violence on the grounds of constitutionality. Patel severely criticised the Viceroy's induction of League ministers into the government and the revalidation of the grouping scheme by the British without Congress approval. Although further outrage at the League's boycott of the Assembly and non-acceptance of the plan of, of 16th May, despite entering in government, he was also aware that Jinnah enjoyed popular support amongst the Muslims, and that an open conflict between him and the Nationalists could, could degenerate into a Hindu-Muslim civil war. The continuation of a divided and weak central government would, in Patel's mind, result in wider fragmentation of India by encouraging more than 600 princely states towards independence. Why? Because India in 1947 includes multiple self-ruled princely states inside of British India. Between the months of December 1946 and January 1947, Patel worked with civil servant V.P. Menon on the latter's suggestion for a separate dominion of Pakistan created out of Muslim-majority provinces. Communal violence in Bengal and Punjab in January and March 1947 further convinced Patel of the soundness of partition. Patel, a fierce critic of Jinnah's demand that the Hindu-majority areas of Punjab and Bengal be included in a Muslim state, obtained the partition of those provinces, thus, block, thus blocking any possibility of their inclusion in Pakistan. Patel's decisiveness on the partition of Punjab and Bengal have won him many supporters and admirers amongst the Indian public that had gotten tired of the League's tactics. Still, he was criticised by Gandhi, Nehru, secular Muslims and socialists for perceived eagerness for partition. To understand the British perspective on Indian independence, I want to look at the Indian Independence Act of 1947. Clement Attlee, the Prime Minister, announced on the 20th of February 1947 that 1. The British government would grant full self-government to British India by the 30th of June 1948 at the latest and 2. The future of the princely states would be decided after that date of final transfer. The 3rd June 1947 plan, also known as the Mountbatten Plan, included certain principles. 1 principle of the partition of British India was accepted by the British government. 2. Successor governments would be given dominion status. 3. Autonomy and sovereignty to both countries. 4. Can make their own constitution. 5. Princely states were given the right to either join Pakistan or India. 6. Provinces can become a separate nation other than Pakistan or India. The Act had other really important provisions. 1 was that the division of British India into the two new dominions of India and Pakistan would be in effect from the 15th of August 1947. Partition of the provinces of Bengal and Punjab between the two countries would occur. Establishment of the office of Governor-General in each of these countries as representatives of the Crown would happen. Conferral of complete legislative authority upon the respective constituent assemblies of the two countries would occur. Termination of British oversight over the princely states with effect from the 15th of August 1947 would occur. Abolition of the use of the title Emperor of India by the British monarch. And finally, the Act also made provision for the division of joint property etc. between the two countries, including in particular the division of the armed forces. 
When Mountbatten formally proposed the plan, Patel gave his approval and lobbied Nehru and other Congress leaders to accept the proposal. Knowing Gandhi's deep anguish regarding proposals of partition, Patel engaged him in private meetings and discussions over perceived practical unworkability of any Congress League coalition, the rising violence and the threat of civil war. At the All India Congress Committee meeting to vote on the proposal, Patel said, and I quote, I fully appreciate the fears of our brothers from the Muslim majority areas. Nobody likes the division of India and my heart is heavy. But the choice is between one of division and many divisions. We must face facts. We cannot give away to emotionalism and sentimentality. The working committee has not acted out of fear. But I am afraid of one thing, that our toil and hard work of these many years might go to waste or prove unfruitful. My nine months in office have completely disillusioned me regarding the supposed merits of the cabinet mission plan. Except for a few honourable exceptions, Muslim officials from the top down to the Chaprasis are working for the League. The communal veto given to the League in the mission plan would have blocked India's progress at every stage. Whether we like it or not, de facto Pakistan already exists in Punjab and Bengal. Under the circumstances, I would prefer a de facto Pakistan, which may make the League more responsible. Freedom is coming. We have 75-80% to 80% of India, which we can make strong with our genius. The League can develop the rest of the country. End quote. Following Gandhi's denial, he opposed the partition, and Congress's approval of the plan, Patel represented India on the Partition Council, where he oversaw the division of public assets and selected the Indian Council of Ministers with Nehru. However, neither he nor any other Indian leader had foreseen the intense violence and population transfer that would take place with partition. Late in 1946, Attlee's Labour government in Britain, its exchequer, exhausted by the recently concluded World War II, decided to end British rule of India and do it early. In 1947, Britain announced its intention of transferring power no later than June 1948. However, with the British army unprepared for the potential for increased violence, Mountbatten advanced a date from the transfer of power, allowing less than six months to a mutually agreed plan for independence. That brings us on to the Ratcliffe Line. The Ratcliffe Line was the boundary demarcation in line between the Indian and Pakistani portions of the Punjab and Bengal. These were the provinces of British India that were to be divided. It was named after its architects, Sir Cyril Ratcliffe, who as joint chairman of the two boundary commissions for the two provinces received the responsibility to actually divide 175,000 square miles of territory with 88 million people. Remember now, this was the guy that was plucked out of obscurity and he had never been east of Paris. The demarcation line was published on the 17th of August 1947 upon the partition of India. Today, its western side still serves as the Indo-Pakistani border and the eastern side serves as the India-Bangladesh border. It is over 3,000 kilometers long. With Atli and Mountbatten eager to get out of the bubbling, boiling pot that was India, on the 15th of July 1947, the Indian Independence Act of 1947 stipulated that British rule in India would come to an end just one month later on the 15th of August 1947. 
The Act also stipulated the partition of the presidencies and provinces of British India into two new sovereign dominions, India and Pakistan. Pakistan was to become the Muslim homeland for Indian Muslims, while India remained secular. Muslim-majority British provinces in the north were to become the foundation of Pakistan. The provinces of Balochistan, Sindh and Northwest Frontier Province were granted entirely to Pakistan. However, two provinces did not have an overwhelming majority of Muslims. Punjab in the northwest had 55% Muslims and Bengal in the northeast had 54% Muslims. After elaborate discussions, these two provinces ended up being partitioned between India and Pakistan. The Punjab's population distribution was such that there was no line that could neatly divide Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs. Likewise, no line could appease both the Muslim League headed by Jinnah and the Indian National Congress led by Nehru and Patel. Moreover, any division based on religious communities was sure to entail cutting through roads and rail communications, irrigation schemes, electric power systems and even individual land holdings. However, a well-drawn line could minimize the separation of farmers from their fields and also minimize the number of people who might feel forced to relocate. Partition, of course, was not a new idea. The idea of partitioning the provinces of Bengal and Punjab had been present since the beginning of the 20th century. As discussed in the previous episode of this podcast, Bengal had in fact been partitioned by the then Viceroy Lord Curzon in 1905, along with its adjoining regions. The resulting eastern Bengal and Assam province with its capital at Dhaka had a Muslim-majority population and the West Bengal province with its capital in Calcutta had a Hindu majority. However, this partition of Bengal was reversed in 1911, as I'd mentioned last time, in an effort to mollify Bengali nationalism. In the prior episode, we discussed the Lahore Resolution of 1940, of the Muslim League demanding Pakistan. Dr. Ambedkar wrote a 400-page tract entitled Thoughts on Pakistan, wherein he discussed the boundaries of Muslim and non-Muslim regions of Punjab and Bengal. In March 1946, the British government sent a cabinet mission to India to find a solution to resolve the conflicting demands of Congress and the Muslim League. Congress agreed to allow Pakistan to be formed with genuine Muslim areas. The Sikh leaders asked for a Sikh state with Ambala and Jalandhar, Lahore divisions with some district from the Multan division, which however did not meet the cabinet delegates' agreement. In other discussions with Jinnah, the cabinet mission offered either a smaller Pakistan with all the Muslim-majority districts or a larger Pakistan under the sovereignty of the Indian Union. The cabinet mission came close to success with its proposal for an Indian Union under a federal scheme, but it fell apart in the end because of Nehru's opposition to a heavily decentralized India. Over 10 days, Mountbatten obtained the agreement of Congress to the Pakistan demand, except for the 13 eastern districts of Punjab, that included Amritsar and Gurdaspur. However, Jinnah held out. Through a series of six meetings with Mountbatten, he continued to maintain that his demand was for six full provinces. He bitterly complained that the Viceroy was ruling his Pakistan by cutting Punjab and Bengal in half and this would mean a moth-eaten Pakistan. The Gurdaspur district remained a key contentious issue for the non-Muslims. Their members of the Punjab legislature made representations to Mountbatten's chief of staff, Lord Ismay, 
as well as the governor gen- general telling them that Gurdaspur was a non-Muslim district. They contended that even if it had a marginal Muslim majority of 51%, which they believed to be onerous, the Muslims paid only 35% of the land revenue in the district. In April, the governor of Punjab, Evan Jenkins, wrote a note to Mountbatten proposing that Punjab be divided along Muslim and non-Muslim majority districts and proposed a boundary commission to be set up consisting of two Muslim and two non-Muslim members recommended by the Punjab Legislative Assembly. He also proposed that a British judge of the High Court be appointed as the chairman of the commission. Jinnah and the Muslim League continued to oppose the idea of partitioning the provinces, and the Sikhs were disturbed by the, about the possibility of getting only 12 districts without Gurdaspur. In this context, the partition plan of the 3rd of June was announced with a notional partition showing 17 districts of Punjab in Pakistan and 12 districts in India, along with the establishment, establishment of a boundary commission to decide the final boundary. Enter Cyril Radcliffe. In order to determine exactly which territories to assign to each country, in June 1947, Britain appointed Mr. Ratcliffe to chair two boundary commissions, one for Bengal, one for Punjab. The commission was instructed to demarcate the boundaries of the two parts of the Punjab on the basis of continuous majority areas for Muslims and non-Muslims. In doing so, it would also take into account other factors. Those other factors were undefined, thus giving Ratcliffe leeway but included decisions regarding natural boundaries, communications, watercourses and irrigation systems, as well as socio-political considerations. Each commission also had four representatives, two from the Indian National Congress and two from the Muslim League. Given the deadlock between the interests of the two sides and their rancorous relationship, the final decision essentially was Radcliffe's. After arriving in India on the 8th of July 1947, Radcliffe was given just five weeks to decide on a border, he soon met with his fellow colleague alum Mountbatten and travelled to Lahore and Calcutta to meet with Commission members, chiefly Nehru from the Congress and Jinnah from the Muslim League. He objected to the short time frame but all parties were insistent that the line be finished by the 15th of August, i.e. the British withdrawal from India. Mountbatten had accepted the post as Viceroy on the condition of an early deadline. The decision was completed just a couple of days before the withdrawal, but due to political manoeuvring not published until the 17th of August 1947, two days after the grant of independence to India and Pakistan. The equal representation given to politicians from the Indian National Congress and the Muslim League appeared to provide balance, but instead created deadlock. The relationships were so tenuous that the judges could hardly bear to speak to each other, and the agendas so at odds that there seemed to be little point anyway. Even worse, the wife of two children of the Sikh judge in Lahore had been murdered by Muslims in Rawalpindi a few days earlier. In fact, minimizing the numbers of Hindus and Muslims on the wrong side of the line was not the only concern to balance. The Punjab Border Commission was to draw a border through the middle of an area home to the Sikh community. Lord Islay was not keen for the British to not give more consideration to the community who, in his words, had provided many thousands of splendid recruits for the Indian Army in its service for the Crown in World War I. However, the Sikhs were militant in their opposition to any solution which would put their community in a Muslim-ruled state. 
Last of all were the communities without any representation. The Bengal Border Commission representatives were chiefly concerned with the question of who would get Calcutta. The Buddhist tribes in the Chittagong Hill tracks in Bengal had no official representation and were left totally without information to prepare for their situation until two days after partition. Perceiving the situation as intractable and urgent, Ratcliffe went on to make all the difficult decisions by himself. This was impossible from inception, but Ratcliffe seems to have had no doubt in himself and raised no official complaint or proposal to change the circumstances. Before his appointment, Ratcliffe had never visited India and knew no one there. To the British and the feuding politicians alike, this neutrality was looked upon as an asset. He was considered to be unbiased towards any of the parties except, of course, Britain. Only his private secretary, Christopher Beaumont, was familiar with the administration and life in Punjab. Wanting to preserve the appearance of impartiality, Ratcliffe also kept his distance from Mountbatten. That being said, no amount of knowledge could produce a line that would completely avoid conflict. Already, sectarian riots in Punjab and Bengal had dimmed hopes for a quick and dignified British withdrawal. Many of the seeds of post-colonial disorder in South Asia were sown much earlier in a century and a half of direct and indirect British control of large parts of the region. But as book after book has demonstrated, nothing in the complex tragedy of the partition was inevitable. Ratcliffe justified the casual division with the truism that no matter what he did, people would suffer. The thinking behind this justification may never be known since Ratcliffe destroyed all his papers before he left India. He departed on Independence Day itself, before even the boundary awards were redistributed. By his own admission, Ratcliffe was heavily influenced by his lack of fitness for the Indian climate and his eagerness to depart India. The implementation was no less hasty than the process of drawing the border. On 16th of August 1947, at 5 o'clock p.m., the Indian and Pakistani representatives were given two hours to study the copies before the Ratcliffe Award was published on the 17th of August. To avoid disputes and delays, the division was done in secret. The final awards were ready on the 9th and 12th of August, but not published until two days after partition. There is some circumstantial evidence that Nehru and Patel were secretly informed of the Punjab Awards content on the 9th or 10th of August, either through Mountbatten or Ratcliffe's Indian Secretary. Regardless of how it transpired, the award was changed to put a salient east of Sutlej Canal within India's domain instead of Pakistan's. This area consisted of two Muslim-majority areas with a combined population of over half a million. There were two apparent reasons for the switch. The area housed an army depot and contained the headwaters of a canal which irrigated the princely state of Bikaneer, which would accede to India. After the partition, the governments of India and Pakistan were left with all the responsibility to implement the border. After visiting Lahore in August, Mountbatten hastily arranged a Punjab boundary force to keep the peace around Lahore, but 50,000 men was not enough to prevent thousands of killings, 77% of which were in rural areas. Given the size of the territory, the force amounted to less than one soldier per square mile. This was not enough to protect the cities, 
much less the caravans of the hundreds of thousands of refugees who are fleeing their homes in what would become Pakistan. Both India and Pakistan were loath to violate the agreement by supporting the rebellions of villages drawn on the wrong side of the border, as this could prompt a loss of face on the international stage and require the British or the UN to intervene. Border conflicts led to three wars ultimately, in 1947, 1965 and 1971, and then the Cargill War of 1999. Outside of the legal and political processes was a real human toll. Describing the violence that accompanied the partition of India, historians Ian Talbot and Gurpal Singh write, and I quote, There are numerous eyewitness accounts of the maiming and mutilation of victims. The catalogue of horrors includes the disemboweling of pregnant women, the slamming of babies' heads against brick walls, the cutting off of victims' limbs and genitalia, and the displaying of heads and corpses. While previous communal riots had been deadly, the scale and level of brutality during the partition massacres was unprecedented. Although some scholars questioned the use of the term genocide concerning the partition massacres, much of the violence was manifested with genocidal tendencies. It was designed to cleanse an existing generation and prevent its future reproduction. End quote. Massive population exchanges occurred between the two newly formed states in the months immediately following the partition. There was no conception that population transfer would be necessary because of the partitioning. Religious minorities were expected to stay put in the states they found themselves residing in. However, an exception was made for Punjab, where the transfer of populations was organised because of the communal violence impacting the province. This did not apply to other provinces. The population of undivided India in 1947 was approximately 390 million. After partition, there were 330 million people in India, 30 million in West Pakistan and 30 million people in East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh. Once the boundaries were established, about 14.5 million people crossed the borders to what they hoped was the relative safety of religious majority. The 1951 census of Pakistan identified the number of displaced persons in Pakistan at about 7.2 million, presumably all Muslims who had entered Pakistan from India. The 1951 census of India counted about 7.2 million displaced persons as well, apparently all Hindus and Sikhs who had moved to India from Pakistan immediately after the partition. The overall total is therefore around 14.5 million people. About 11.2 million people were in the West, the majority from Punjab. Of it, 6.5 million Muslims moved from India to West Pakistan and 4.7 million Hindus and Sikhs moved from West Pakistan to India. Thus, the net migration in the West from India to West Pakistan was 1.8 million. The other 3.3 million were in the East. Remember, East Pakistan later becomes Bangladesh. 2.6 million people moved from East Pakistan to India and 0.7 million moved from India to East Pakistan. Thus, net migration in the East was 1.9 million into India. There were lines or caravans of people walking across from where the two partitioned lines existed. Some people left their homes with the expectation that they would be back in a few weeks. The violence was civilian on civilian, neighbour on neighbour, 
In Punjab in particular, religious tension had been rampant for some time now. It came out into the open. These caravans were attacked by both sides. Victims were on both sides. Butchery of men, women, children, kidnapping and rape became hallmarks of the human condition. There are accounts of some of these events in books. Trains would be stopped and entire trains of people would be butchered. There are accounts of trains showing up at their destinations with everyone dead, man, woman and child, killed, not by armies but by other civilians. These people were farmers, housewives, students, lawyers, workers, not soldiers or military people. They were civilians and they were causing, in inverted commas, genocide, brutal murder on both sides, on each other. This was the human condition of partition. Massive resettlement programs were launched as both countries inherited millions of people from the other side. Delhi, the city, increased its population from around 1 million to 2 million people in just a few weeks. A total of about 2 million people were assumed missing. Eventually, both sides decided to rehabilitate abducted and raped women. Although many were moved back to each other's countries, most women decided to remain where they were captured for fear of not being accepted by their own families on both sides. Even though some Indian Muslims trickled into Pakistan in the early 1950s, the number was low and non-existent by the 1970s. Due to religious persecution in Pakistan, Hindus continued to flee to India. Most of them tended to settle in the states of Rajasthan and India. The migration of Hindus from East Pakistan to India continued unabated after partition. The 1951 census in India recorded that 2.5 million refugees arrived from East Pakistan, of which 2.1 million migrated to West Bengal, while the rest migrated to Assam, Tripura and other states. There was opposition to partition. Opposition to the partition of India was widespread in India in the 20th century, and it continues to remain a talking point in South Asian politics. Those who opposed it often adhered to the doctrine of composite nationalism. The Hindu, Christian, Anglo-Indian, Parsi and Sikh communities were largely opposed to the partition of India and its underlying two-nation theory, as were many Muslims. These were represented by the All India Azad Muslim Conference. Pashtun politician and Indian independence activist Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan of the Kudai Kitmangar viewed the proposal of partition of India as un-Islamic and contradicting a common history in which Muslims considered India as their homeland for over a millennium. Mahatma Gandhi opined that Hindus and Muslims were sons of the same soil of India and they were brothers who therefore must strive to keep India free and united. In the 1946 Indian provincial elections, only 16% of Indian Muslims, mainly those from upper class, were able to vote. The common Indian Muslims, however, opposed the partition of India, believing that, as a Muslim state, would benefit only upper class Muslims. The All India Conference of Indian Christians, representing the Christians of colonial India, along with Sikh political parties such as the Chief Khalsa Divan and Shirnomni Akali Dal, led by Master Tara Singh, condemned the call by separatists to create Pakistan, viewing it as a movement that would possibly persecute them. Pakistan was created through the partition of India based on religious segregation. The very concept of dividing the country of India along religious lines has been criticised as being a backward idea for the modern era. 
After it occurred, critics of the partition of India point to the displacement of 15 million people, the murder of more than 1 million people, and the rape of around 75,000 women to demonstrate the view that it was a mistake. Or was it a mistake? Did it prevent future civil wars? Did it prevent future problems? Did it prevent the future crises that never happened? We'll never know. But next time, I will look at part three of the three-part series on India's borders. Kashmir, the India-Pakistan wars, the war with China, and how India gobbled up the princely states in Goa. Finally, we will look at the final act, the creation of Bangladesh, following a civil war in Pakistan. If Curzon tried to pf- and failed in the first partition of Bengal, Mountbatten and Jinnah seemingly succeeded in the second, the, th- the third came in the early 1970s, creating a brand new country for the Bengali Muslims of Pakistan. You've been listening to The Sinner, an alternative history podcast. Thank you. Thank you.